Morning, Spring Meadows. Happy Sabbath. We can do better than that. Happy Sabbath. That's a little better. One more time. Happy Sabbath. All right, that's, that's, we're getting there. We'll work on that. Praise God that we are here today. I want to welcome those who are joining us from home. We thank you for joining us as well. I know some people are joining us from other places other than even Florida. So we praise God that you're joining us to worship, to, to share this fellowship today. But God is good, isn't he? I pray that you've experienced the goodness of God this week. If you have, say amen. amen. Have you experienced the goodness of God? One more time. Amen. amen. God is always good. Even when we don't always immediately see it, he is still good. Amen? His goodness endures forever. As I was reflecting on this past week, again, God always is working. He's always revealing himself in ways we do not expect. God is always accomplishing his purpose. And I praise God for that. Amen. You know, this week, I wanted to share with you just, just a story. You know, we, we hear stories, historical things, and sometimes we're not quite sure if they're totally accurate, sometimes even true. So this one, I actually went online. I said, hey, is this on? Uh, I Googled it. Couldn't find if it was true or not. So I'm just giving you a heads up if you go and do a Snopes on this. All right? So just, just a heads up. But it's regarding Leonardo da Vinci. And it's a story about him as he was painting The Last Supper. And the story goes like this. Leonardo da Vinci, as he was painting the famous work of the Last Supper, which was the last meal Jesus had with his disciples, it was said that during that two-year span of time that Leonardo had a falling out with a close friend of his. And it apparently was so bad that they just stopped talking. He was so hurt so deeply that Leonardo just said, we're no longer going to associate with each other. I'm not sure what happened. I don't know if his friend, who was also an artist, went to the Mona Lisa and drew a mustache on it. He faced it. I have no idea. But he was upset. And so, as the story goes, Leonardo was painting the Last Supper, and when he came to the face of none other than Judas Iscariot, the story goes like this. Like I said, this may or not be true. But that when he painted Judas's face, guess whose face he used for the portrait? The previous friend who had deeply hurt and offended him. And so he was satisfied that possibly through the ages, not really knowing the, the measure and the magnitude of his work possibly, but that his friend who hurt him deeply would then be ingrained in this picture as this one associated with the one who betrayed Jesus. That's pretty bad. He must have been deeply hurt. But here's the problem, because then the story goes, as, as Leonardo was finishing the painting, as he comes to the face of Jesus, guess what happened? He was stuck. The story says that Leonardo, when he looked at the face of Jesus and he was trying to figure out how to paint it, he could not. Because his mind kept going back to what he had done on the face of Judas. He could not paint the face of Jesus while he had done that to this individual through the face of Judas. And it wasn't until he replaced that face with a different one, apparently nobody in particular, that he was then able to paint the face of Jesus. I want to submit to you today, could it be that maybe we cannot ever truly see Jesus' face 
until we see those who have wronged us through the eyes of grace. Could it be that we will never truly see Jesus' face until we've seen those who have hurt us and wronged us through the eyes of grace? I'm not trying to be a poet. It just rhymes. (laughs) Today we're continuing our sermon about forgiveness. Last week we talked about the what and the why of forgiveness. The why we learned was because we have been forgiven. Amen? Because we have been the recipients of amazing, unlimited grace found in Jesus through the love of the Father, reconciling us to him through the cross of Calvary because of grace that has been extended and given to us freely and that we have received the premise is this, is that now we are conduits, we are, we are vessels of grace to those around us. That is the why of forgiveness. Because you have been forgiven, we forgive. A forgiven Christian is a forgiving Christian. We also looked at what forgiveness is. It is literally canceling out somebody else's debt. Canceling out a debt. And the problem that we learned last week is this, is that the number one reason why we have trouble with forgiveness many times is because we have not truly understood and received and acknowledged God's forgiveness and his grace towards us. And so we keep trying to work off the debt like that unjust steward and demanding it from other people around us. We will never be able to see Jesus' face fully until we see those who've wronged us through the eyes of grace. So today I'd like to continue our our time together on this sometimes difficult topic, always difficult topic of forgiveness. We're going to get practical today on what it means, who is the one that needs to forgive, when is it to happen, and how can we truly forgive one another within the body of Christ and without. And so as we approach this, let's approach it through a prayerful heart, seeking God's wisdom. And so let's bow our heads just one more time today. Dear gracious Heavenly Father, we come before you because we are here only because of your grace. We are here because of your great love for us. And as we learn about what that grace means as conduits, as vessels of grace to the world around us, I pray that you would just use us, that you would open our hearts and minds, open our eyes to what you want to do in us and through us. And Father, help us to approach you with humble hearts, fully surrendered, so that you may be glorified in your church today. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to jump right in. The first question we're asking today is the who of forgiveness. It's the who. Who is in need of forgiveness? Who is the one who needs to forgive? And so let's just jump right in in our Bibles. Mark chapter 11, verse 25 is our opening verse. Mark 11, verse 25. It's on your screen. You can open your Bibles. And so Mark eleven twenty five. 25, these are the words of Jesus, by the way, because we're going to start and finish with the words of Jesus, because we can't go wrong when we listen and obey the words of Christ, because Jesus knows what he's talking about. He is our example. He is our Savior. He is our Lord, the one who we submit to. And so this is no different. Mark 11, verse 25, Jesus says, and whenever you stand praying, you heard Brad mention this earlier during the prayer time. If you have anything against anyone, what's it say? Forgive him. In other words, if you're standing up and praying and you're asking for forgiveness, Jesus says, hold on. If you realize that somebody that 
that if you have anything against somebody, in other words, somebody may have wronged you, hurt you, sinned against you, and if you realize that and your heart is not right, he said, just pause right there. This, this, is, this is pretty drastic. Pause right there and go and forgive him that your Father in heaven may also forgive you your trespasses. So that's picture number one. Picture number one is when somebody has wronged us. Picture number two, we're going to delve right in here, I told you. Matthew chapter 18, verse 15 through 17. It says, moreover, we're just going to do 15 right now. We'll do the other ones a little later. Moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. In other words, once again, reiterating the, the first verse, Mark 11, if somebody sins against us, we go and make things right. If we are the ones, even the offended ones, and now we flip the coin. Matthew chapter 5, verse 23 and 24, Jesus' words again. Jesus flips the script, and he says something just the opposite. He says, therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar, an act of worship again, an act of prayer, a gift to God, an offering, and there remember that your brother has something against you. What's that mean? It means not that somebody's done something against you, but now you've done something against somebody else. And you've offended somebody. Somebody's hurt. Somebody's not right towards you. It's the same thing. Jesus says this. He said, and you realize that somebody has been offended by something you have done. Leave your gift right there, just like the prayer. Stop right there. Leave your gift at the altar. Go your way. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come back. Man, drastic. Jesus is radical when he's talking about forgiveness and reconciliation. He holds it in utmost regard and utmost importance. He says, don't even come to worship until you've made things right with somebody who you've wronged, who has wronged you. That is strong stuff. The question remains, who is the one who initiates forgiveness? The answer is always the same. You know who it is? It's me. (laughs) It's the one looking in the mirror. No matter if you are at fault or somebody else is at fault, it doesn't matter. My fault, your fault, anybody's fault. Jesus says that when you realize it, you are the first one to go. And that's hard, especially when it's not your fault, especially when somebody wronged you and you're sitting there saying, well, I'm going to sit here and give them the silent treatment. I'm going to not talk to them, even acknowledge them as even a human being until they come to me and make things right. Because that's what's fair, right? We shouldn't have to go make things right with somebody who's done us wrong. It goes against every grain of our humanity. But Jesus is saying, when somebody wrongs you, don't wait for them to come. You go and be the first one to go to them. Wow. The answer is always the same. We can never be called to wait on the other person to make the first move. Sometimes in in life, in these relationships, we're in a stalemate. Maybe with your spouse, your friend, your brother or sister, your parents. We get in these stalemates. We don't talk to each other because no one's willing to make the first move. Are you there today? Are you in a stalemate with somebody who's important in your life? Or maybe who you feel is not important at all? Maybe it's a coworker that you wish wouldn't be working with you anymore. But you're in a stalemate today because nobody is willing to make the move. I'm reminded a little bit of, of Cobra Kai. 
because if you remember Karate Kid, you know, Cobra Kai, th- th- their mantra, their motto is what? It says, strike what? Strike first? Strike hard? It says, no mercy. Well, this is a little different. Because we are, as Christians, when it comes to reconciliation, we are to strike first. No matter who we are, what's going on, we strike first. We take the first step. And love strikes hard. It does. It, deep, it goes deep down beneath the surface, down to our hearts. It is hard. It's tough. It's visceral. It's raw at times. Love is real. But it's not about no mercy. It's all about mercy. That's the way of Jesus. We strike first, we strike hard, but with all mercy and grace. So that is the who. It's always the one in the mirror. Is that clear? Jesus says you and I are always the ones to make the first step. There's never a way around that. We are always the one. I know that's hard. As a matter of fact, it's impossible. That's why Jesus says my grace is sufficient. My strength is made perfect in your weakness. But we'll talk more about that. The second question is the when of forgiveness. When should we go? When is it appropriate to go and approach somebody on either end of that spectrum who's wronged us or that we've wronged? Let's, let's look at this just for a second. Sometimes people do stuff without knowing and we're not bothered and we just say, you know what, it was unintentional, I'm going to let it go. That's okay. But the first indicator that you need to go is that when your heart is starting to bother you, if we have any amount whatsoever of anger or resentment or hurt, step number one, that is an indicator to you and I that we need to go. Number one, how is your heart? Ask the question. Number two, is it dishonoring God? Is what's happening here bringing reproach upon God's cause through your life, through the life of this individual? Has it damaged your relationship with this person? Even if it might not bother you, but if it's damaging and causing a rift, you need to go. Number, number three, actually it's number four, is it hurting other people? Maybe you guys are fine, but other people are watching this and it's, it's affecting them in a negative way. Is it hurting the offender and diminishing that person's usefulness in the kingdom of God? Galatians chapter 6 verse 1, Paul says, Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one. And I love this. He says, in the spirit of what? He says, of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. In other words, just like Jesus said, when you go to somebody, make sure you recognize the log in your eye before you try to take the little splinter out of theirs. Recognizing your weakness, your frailty, your failures, your potential to wrong somebody, that gives us a heart that we can approach somebody in the right spirit with gentleness and humility and grace. Before, if we don't have that spirit, don't go. You stay where you're at because it's not going to go well. (laughs) If we can't go with our heart in the right place, then we need to do some heart work before we go. So we know the who, we know the when, but what about the how? The how of forgiveness. Colossians chapter 3, verse 12 through 14. Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, this is Paul again, put on tender mercies. I love this. He says, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, This is his charge to the church. 
in his day. And this is charged to their church today. This is Jesus charged to us, bearing with one another. In other words, being patient. Bearing means to, to bear with, to, to be patient and work with alongside of, waiting on, seeing people's weaknesses and frailty and failures and working with them and forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, you also must do. It's not a if or maybe. He says you must do. But here's where he finishes. He says, but above all these things, put on love. Love always has the final word. Love always has the final word, and grace is how that love is displayed and expressed. Put on love, which is the bond of perfection. Remember that. Put that in your pocket. It's important. Love is the bond of perfection. So how do we forgive? Forgiveness begins... As we look at this whole scenario, remember we had the two sides of the coin that start with if you are the offender. Maybe you're the one who's wronged somebody. How do we start with forgiveness? How do we accomplish this or, or start this process with somebody that we have messed up against? Once again, Matthew chapter 5, verse, verse 23 and 24, if you bring your gift to the altar, remember that somebody has something against you, leave it there. God's less interested about your gift of worship and your sacrifice than he is about your obedience to him in the eyes and the act of grace. He doesn't care about your offering if you have a rift with somebody else that needs to be made right. That's what, he, that's what the Bible's saying. Obedience is better than sacrifice. Obeying the way of Jesus, being in tune with his heart, being and seeing people through the eyes of grace. Just recently, I came across this uh, a book written by Gary Chapman, and you probably have read or heard of the five love languages, right? It's about how we each express love, receive love in different ways. A great book, by the way, if you haven't read it. Well, I didn't realize there was a companion book to this, and it's called The Five Languages of, guess what? An Apology. The Five Languages of an Apology. And by the way, reconciliation with anybody begins with an apology. We can't get around that. We, we have a hard time with it. How many of you guys, you might be getting up in my age or beyond, remember Happy Days? Come on. Happy Days, the show? Okay, yes. Well, you remember Arthur Fonzarelli? One thing I remember about the show is that any time he had messed up, he always had almost an impossible time owning up to it. Remember? Like he'd mess up and, and insult Richie or somebody else, and he'd say, Richie, I was He couldn't say wrong. Or he would, he would say, I'm slow. He couldn't say sorry. Because this persona of being cool and, and strong prevented him from doing that. There's two things that prevent us from apologizing, from making things right many times. It's fear, fear of rejection and failure. Maybe they're not going to accept my apology, and so we just avoid it. We don't want to deal with it. It's difficult. It's uncomfortable. And then there's pride, because maybe we don't think we were totally wrong. They need to own up too, and so pride keeps us sometimes, many times, from saying that we're sorry. So I love what Gary Chapman says, because it's very practical. Get your pens out. Write this down. I just want to share with you the different elements of these five languages of an apology. Very practical. So I'm just going to go through them quick. Apology language number one, and by the way, 
This is important because maybe some of you just missed your wife's an- your anniversary or your wife's birthday. You need to know this because Gary Chapman's premise is that each one of us respond better to one of these languages of apology than others. And so we need to learn our spouse's language of apology, what they respond to best. There's a quiz on his website, by the way. Check it out. It's free. You can find out yours and hopefully your spouse's language of apology, how to best apologize. But the elements are the same for everybody. Number one, moving quickly, apology language number one, and this is the first part of an apology, is expressing regrets. This is the words, I am sorry. This is the first step and the most key element of a sincere apology. I am sorry. It's the emotional aspect, acknowledging the pain, the inconvenience, what you have done has caused the other person. I am sorry. You're expressing the regret of what you had done or what had happened. Language number two, accepting responsibility. That's where we say not just I'm sorry because of what what has happened, but now we admit that we were wrong. That's the hard part. I am sorry that this happened and I was wrong. Admitting our mistakes without self-justification or excuses. Here's where we fall short in this area. We apologize, but we always put that but in there. You know, I'm sorry, but you know, you also did this and that. So we, we always put the preamble or, the, or the, the, uh, the, the post after the apology. I'm sorry, but you know, next time you need to think about this too. <laughs> but that's not truly the idea. That's always going to throw a wrench in it. We accept responsibility for our part in the matter and, and don't worry about the other person's. That's up to them. We own up to our part. I was wrong. Number three, making restitution. We ask the question, I'm sorry, I was wrong, and now we say, what can I do to make this right? This is hard, because sometimes it requires sacrifice and things that we're not willing to even tap into. It's to make amends in our relationships. It's how can we communicate to those that we care about that they are still loved? How can I make this right? How can I communicate to you that I still love you and we're still in this together? Maybe you need the five love languages to do that. Number four, apology language number four is genuinely repenting. Repent means to turn around and to change. This one's a hard one too. To make an effort not to do it again. So when you've messed up, you've, you've forgotten something that your wife asked you to get, but then you keep forgetting time and time again, that makes it tougher. But this is a commitment. And there's actually three stages of this that that Chapman mentions. He said, first of all, there's the intent to change. Secondly, to create a plan for change. And thirdly, to implement that plan. We make all sorts of plans and promises and resolutions, but many times don't implement them. So it's not just saying, hey, I'm going to change, but it's also being intentional, showing that person you're willing and active and, and, and engaged with that change. And apology language number five, finally, is requesting forgiveness. So it's saying I'm sorry, admitting we were wrong, making amends, making restitution, repenting that we will not do it again by God's grace, and finally asking, will you please forgive me? This indicates that you want a relationship with that person who you have wronged. You want that relationship to be restored. And it's hard and it's scary. And remember one thing with this. You are always requesting, you're never demanding forgiveness. (laughs) You can't say, hey, Jesus said you have to forgive me, so you better forgive me. And I'm not leaving here until you do it. No. We ask for forgiveness. It is an act of the will. It's a decision. You cannot force it. 
Don't beat someone over the head with Jesus' command or his mandate to us as Christians. It's not going to work. It's not appropriate. But we ask because we don't deserve it, but we're asking that they would be gracious to us. Forgiveness gives up the quest for justice, and this is why it's hard. And the consequences can be long-lasting. It may be a major offense that's been committed, and the offense may have been repeated. And I'm not trying to sugarcoat and think this is easy. It's not. Like I said before, it's impossible apart from Jesus. But what about if we are the offended? What if we are the offended? Matthew chapter 18, if you'll turn there with me just for a few minutes. I believe Matthew 18 is the most forgotten and underused verse, verse, uh, passage in the Bible that if we would follow it, if we would follow it, would prevent 99.9% of most of the conflicts that we have in our relationships, within our churches, in our workplaces. If we'd follow Jesus' words, his advice, his way, we would avoid almost every single relational issue that we have today. Matthew chapter 18, verse 15. I told you we're going to come back here and we're going to expand it a little bit. We're just for a couple minutes. Matthew chapter 18, verse 15. Jesus says, moreover, if your brother sins against you, in other words, you are the one being offended, go and tell him his fault. And we've already learned that as we do that, we do that with humility, with grace, with long-suffering and kindness. We don't go there and start beating him over the head, yelling at him and screaming, pushing him around. No. We do it in, a, in the way of Jesus. But we go and tell them what they've done to offend you. I am hurt, and I love you too much to let this go, and I don't want this hurt to get in between us. And so because of love and grace, we go. That's why it's important to be the one to go. And we tell them their fault, what they've done to hurt you. But notice it says, number one, the first stage is always go between you and him or her. What's it say? Alone. I want to share with you that when we skip this step, we are already asking for issues. Many times we've been defeated because we've not followed step number one. Because we're scared, we're intimidated. And so because we don't go one-on-one, with a person who's offended us. Instead, where do we go? We go all around that person. We talk to friends and family. We talk to other church members at times. And we say, this happened, this happened, this happened. Can you believe what they did to me? And we've never gone to that person to talk to them about the issue. That happens in our homes, in our workplaces. You know it, you've seen it, you've experienced it. It's toxic. It's called gossip and slander. It's what destroys relationships time and time again more than anything else on this planet. But if we would, before anybody else, go to that person and say, this hurt me. Let's work this out. Nine times out of ten, it will be solved between you two and nobody else ever has to know. That is the way of Jesus when his grace is involved. But notice, it doesn't always work. Because Jesus says, if he hears you, you've gained your brother or sister. But if he is not willing to hear you, in other words, he's saying, I'm not hearing any of that. I don't want to talk to you. Get away from me. Then Jesus says, hey, there's another step that I want you to take. 
He says, take one or two others with you. Because now you need to have other support to be part of the conversation, to be a liaison between you two as you're talking face-to-face. Notice the apology is never through Facebook. It's never over a text. It's never over the phone. It is always one-on-one. I know we're living in 2021, but nothing substitutes the one-on-one FaceTime apology. Don't do it in a text. You cannot gauge somebody's tone, their gestures, their posture. Don't try it through Facebook because you already skipped skip step one right there because now everybody knows what's going on. Go to the person. Set up an appointment. You can call them first and set the appointment up, but go. But if they don't listen, take one or two others, spiritual people who can be trusted and find somebody who is, who is not maybe on your side all the time. Somebody who can be objective. Let that person have part in it too if they're willing to be part of the process, to choose those who will be part of the conversation. And if they don't listen to that, Jesus says, hey, I'm not done. He says, don't give up. Notice Jesus is relentless. He says, don't give up even when you bring intermediaries in to try to solve this. Then it says, tell, them, tell us to the church. Bring it to the board of elders. Bring it to the leaders of the church. Because this relationship is too important to let go, to let it dissolve, to let it kill your relationship, but also the relationships in the church. And then it says that if he refuses even to hear the church, if there is, if there is something that needs to be pointed out or changed, that him be like a heathen or a tax collector. And I know immediately we read that, we think, well, that means we kick him out, we disfellowship him. That's not what Jesus is saying. How do we treat the heathen and tax collector? Answer me. How are we supposed to treat those outside of the church? What's that? Like them? Invite them, yes. Invite them and love them. And be gracious to them. Try to include them. Reach out to them. This is now evangelism to those who are not acting like a Christian. You don't leave them and kick them to the curb, but instead you go out and you reach out to them. You try to draw them back in by loving on them. More than ever, double-timing your love and grace to that person. We forget that. We misread that. We, we misuse the verse that Jesus is trying to communicate. I want to share with you something. I'm serious about this. I, I am committed, as your pastor, that I want to follow this myself. And I am committed to follow this as a church. So here's what I'm, here's what I'm saying. This, this, this may be bold, And forgive me if it offends, but if anybody here comes to me with an issue about somebody else, now now hear hear me out, my first question to you, I promise you this from my heart, is going to be, have you talked to that person yet? Before you go into anything with me, have you talked to that person yet? If the answer is no, I'm going to say first go talk to them, and then if that doesn't work, come back and talk to me. Excuse me? We have, to wait, we have to wake up? That's the way it should be. Amen, brother. That's, that's right. But many times we don't. And I know even as pastors it's hard. But I'm committed because this is Jesus. This is the only way. And I'm committed to that before you today. And then we move through the process together, if need be. 
So what is the pledge once we've reached, and by God's grace, the next step and in, in the hope is that by this point, we are able to begin a process of reconciliation. As we're moving through the process that Jesus has laid out for us, we pray by God's grace there's openness, there's conversation, there's honesty and transparency so that we can move forward together through a time of healing. When we are hurt, when we are wronged, but what's that mean? If we're to forgive as Christ has forgiven us, it means that we are too to make a pledge to those we are forgiven, just like God makes a pledge to us. What's that pledge that we make? And, and you can jot this down too. What pledge do we make to somebody that we are forgiving? The pledge includes four things. Number one, I will not think about this incident, incident again. I will not dwell on this. I will not brood on it. I will not sit here and, and keep remembering and reliving it and rehashing it in my mind. That's commitment number one. Because when we do that, it's going to be impossible for you to not hate or be angry or hold resentment. It's a commitment. It's a decision. Not that you're, not, that you're just going to simply forget it, but you're going to choose by God's grace. When it comes to your mind, you're going to ask God to help you to, to take the burden from you. Jesus, I'm giving it to you. I can't handle this. I'm getting angry. I'm hurt again. And we have to do that time and time again. Keep handing it over to Jesus. It's just like God. There was a story about a woman who was in a village in the Philippines. And there was a pastor who would walk through the town square every day. And this woman was considered mentally uh, insane. And so everyone said, oh, she's, she's just nuts. You don't want to talk to her. She says she talks to Jesus. She talks to God. And she says he even talks back to her. So the pastor was intrigued. And so he goes up to this lady. And he said, excuse me, he goes, I, I hear, I'm a pastor, he goes, and I hear that you talk to, talk to God. And she goes, yes, I do. And, and he says, and I hear that he talks back to you. And she goes, yes, he does. He goes, okay, well, he was going to test her. He goes, well, here's what I want you to do. When you talk to God tonight and he talks back to you, I want you to ask him one question. He says, ask him, what was the last sin I confessed to him? And then I'll check with you tomorrow and see what the answer is. He poses the challenge, and so he, he goes, and he comes back the next day. She's there in the same spot, and he goes, well, he said, did you ask my question? And she goes, yes, I did. And did he respond? She goes, yes, he did. And he goes, what was his response? And she goes, he said he didn't remember. Because God says he will remember our sins no more. She may have been mentally unstable, but she had it right. God, it's an active process to choose to forget. It's an accident, and it's passive to actually just forget by accident. But God says, I will choose not to remember. I will choose not to hold this against you. Number two, I will not bring up this incident again and use it against you. You're not going to bring it back every other month and say, hey, remember that? I'm still upset and miffed about that. I just need to let you hear it again. There's the commitment number two. Number three, I will not talk to others about this incident. Remember, Matthew 18. Number four, I will not allow this incident to stand between us or hinder our personal relationship any longer. It's a commitment to reconcile, to be moving forward in relationship together. And by making and keeping these promises, we tear down the walls that stand between us and the offender or the offender or the offended and us. And we ask the question, well, what happens if the person doesn't want to be active in the process? Does that mean I still have to forgive? Remember, we forgive just as God in Christ has forgiven us. Did God wait for us to repent and be sorry and work with him? No. 
The Bible says while we were still sinners, he sends Jesus to die for us. While we were still sinners, before we were even born, God is actively reconciling us to him, not counting our sins against us from his heart, the Bible says. And so God puts himself in what we call a position of forgiveness. There's two acts of forgiveness. There's two steps. There is one positional, and, and I've mentioned this before, second is transactional. Positional forgiveness is a promise to maintain the promise, number one, whether the person responds or cares or not, you decide in your heart you're not going to dwell on it. Let it destroy you, eat you alive every single day. Because you're, and you and I are the ones that suffer. We're the ones who are eaten and whose spirituality is being diminished every single day by holding on to stuff, our anger, resentment, and hurt. And then we start hurting other people. But it's our commitment to God that we, from our hearts, will not hold it against the person any longer. But still, things are not right between you and them. And that's where stage two comes in. That's what transactional forgiveness. And this is conditional on the repentance of the offender. The apology. And once that person repents or is willing to work with you, now, now you can move to the next steps of working together and building that relationship. It's just like Jesus, when he was on the cross, he says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. As they were nailing him to the cross. They didn't realize. They didn't care. The relationship wasn't mended. But Jesus is asking, Father, he says, I don't hold this against them. Please don't either, because they have no idea. They don't understand. But then we see the transactional forgiveness happening some days later at Pentecost, where when Peter is preaching, he says, you standing here today have crucified and killed the prince of life. And they were cut to the heart. They repent. They were baptized. And then there was the transaction of forgiveness. Now they were reconciled to God. God was not holding against them from his heart, but now they accepted the forgiveness that God was offering them already. Nothing paints a picture of grace more than things that happen in our world. And there's things that are difficult, things that are hard to understand, to swallow, I, I think of, of Rwanda back in the mid-90s and the genocide that took place there. Within 100 days, over a million, it's estimated, were killed. The, the two different classes of people, the two different tribes there, the Hutus and the Tutsis were at odds, and the Tutsis were the ones that were actually attacked by the Hutus. There were two different tribes, and the Tutsis were traditionally the, the wealthier class and so the Hutus rose up, they, they gained power, and now in the government they were commanded to exterminate all the other tribe and take their wealth, take their belongings, and that's what happened. But within this chaos, as these hundreds of thousands were being killed, we hear the story of people like Luis, who had seven family members killed by a neighbor. Or there is a story of, of Jacqueline, who had six of her family members killed, her parents, her, her sister, her siblings, all killed by another neighbor. Well, after this was all over, years after many were convicted of these war crimes, of these atrocities, the country was just at odds. It was torn apart. And so the leaders in the country, along with Prison Fellowship, a Christian organization, came together and said, how are we going to make amends? It was so widespread that people were killing fellow church members, people were killing people who were their neighbors, who were their friends and coworkers. it didn't matter. People were taking other people's lives indiscriminately based on tribe. 
And by the way, I want to share with you, this is why it's so important today that we don't ever get caught up in tribalism, nationalism, racism, or even partisanism because the kingdom of Jesus is always beyond and above that. When Christians are participating in things like this just because of their, their tribalism, it's hard to imagine, but it happens. When we allow anything else to overcome and to take precedence over the kingdom of God, it always ends in hate and separation and division. But what happens? The, country, the, the government steps in. They say we need to reconcile. People were put in prison for a time, coming out, accused of these war crimes, of these atrocities. And now people like Luis and Jacqueline had the neighbors who killed their relatives living again next door to them, trying to get back together. But an amazing thing happened as they did this. Two things happened in their country. There was a process that was given, and many people didn't go through this, but many did, like Jacqueline and Luis, who were willing to face the ones who did such horrible things to the ones they loved. And those individuals repented to them. They acknowledged what had happened. Somehow, by the grace of God, these individuals were able to move forward. As a country, healing took place and continues to take place today. And what they had actually developed was what we call reconciliation villages. These places where those who are the offenders, those who are the, the killers, are now living side by side with the ones that they had killed and the families that they had done these horrible things to, now living side by side. Jacqueline, Jacqueline says, after we had been reconciled, this is crazy. She goes, we are now friends and relatives. The guy who killed her family, we even share everything. He visits my family. I visit his as well. Our children now understand what happened. Before reconciliation would have been a daydream. And time and time again, these people are working together, living together. There's another amazing thing they do there in Rwanda. It's called Umuganda, which is a, a, a holiday every single month the last Saturday of the month where they come together and they serve together in their communities. They work together to make a better life for those around them, to help each other, to help other people. They minister together. Those who were the killers and those who had people killed now side by side working. Guys, I know this is hard to swallow. I can't even imagine. But it's the ultimate picture of grace. I believe that we are called as the body of Christ to be a reconciliation village where those who've offended us or we've offended live together, reconciled, because we've been reconciled to God. And now the Bible says that we have been called to the ministry, to the calling of reconciliation, to proclaim the reconciliation of us to God through Jesus to our communities, to our world, and to live that towards each other. That is what it means to be a disciple. Every church, every place where the people are gathered in Jesus' name is to be a village of reconciliation, a place where love always has the final word, a place of grace. We only have this life to reconcile. And there will be only one village in the kingdom of God when Jesus returns. Don't think that your village of reconciliation is going to be way down the path from somewhere else. You and I will be living side by side with those who have hurt us. And if we can't figure out here, 
we're not going to be able to figure it out up there. We've got to solve things now in our lives, with our family, with our friends, with our siblings, with our parents. Because when this life ends, there's no more opportunity to make things right. And Jesus is coming soon, one way or the other. Whether we are alive and remain or we are laid in the grave, he is coming and he's coming for his bride, who the Bible says will be without spot and wrinkle. What does that mean? Well, traditionally we've thought it meant that now we are living sinlessly, not eating pork. That's not what Jesus is saying. When Jesus comes for his bride, who is like him, what does that look like? Luke chapter 6, verse 35 and 36 paints the picture of this. We'll end here. Love your enemies, do good to those, and lend, hoping for nothing in return. Jesus says, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High. For he, God, is kind to the unthankful and the evil. And he says, if you want to be like the Father, if we're called to be like Jesus, to be in his image, therefore, he says, be merciful, just as your Father is also merciful. Jesus calls us to be a village of reconciliation, a place of grace and forgiveness. In order to be a place of grace, we need to make a commitment to four simple things. You can jot these down. Number one, a commitment to daily recount God's mercy and grace towards us. The more we remember God's grace and forgiveness towards us individually, the more we can be a conduit of grace to those around us. The moment we forget about that or don't acknowledge it, we become judgmental and hardened. We must always with humility recount God's mercy daily towards us because of our frailty, our failures, and our sinfulness. Number two, a commitment by God's grace that we will strive to forgive as he has forgiven, as we talked about today. Number three, a commitment to always strike first when it comes to forgiveness. Be the first one to make the move. And number four, a commitment to follow Matthew 18 when you've been hurt, or offended. That's what God asks of us today. Not just today, but moving forward, onward, every single day of our lives. And by this, the Bible says, will all the world know that we are his disciples, the followers of Jesus, by how we love one another. Remember what we read earlier in that verse from Paul about love. Above all these things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection you want to be like Jesus, then we need to put on the love of Christ. Allow him to bathe us, have his waves of grace go over us and transform us into pictures of his grace as well. Amen.
together. Dear gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your grace that is so amazing that we can't even begin to fathom or scratch the surface of how deep and wide and great and awesome that it truly is. But help us to live it. Help us be transformed by it. And Lord, may we be reconciliation wherever we are at, in our homes, our workplaces, our church. May everywhere be a reflection of your grace and just as we have learned even from Rwanda that as we serve together, we heal together. As we have our focus away from ourselves and to the community around us, you have your way in our hearts. You transform us. We don't have time to argue about petty things because we're too busy seeking and saving the lost. So we thank you, Lord, for your call to each one of us to be ministers for you and with you. So Lord, use us mightily wherever we're at in whatever sphere you've placed us for your kingdom's glory, and fill us with your grace. And may we see others through the eyes of Jesus, we pray. Bless us as we leave here. Bless our families as well. In Jesus' name, amen. Just a reminder, today we have, as, as we have been, we'll have elders up front. If you'd like special prayer for any special needs in your life or your family, please move to the front, and an elder will be here to pray with you specifically. So don't forget that. God bless you. Have a great week. We'll see you next Sabbath. Take care.